Section 3 of President Lincoln's Attitude Toward Slavery and Emancipation by Henry Watson Wilbur. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lincoln and the Douglas Debates the rising tide in Lincoln's affairs, which led on to political fortune, appeared in the series of debates with Stephen A. Douglas in 1858, the prize in the contest being the position of United States Senator from Illinois. Lincoln lost the honor, although he had more votes in the state than his opponent. The trouble was gerrymandered legislative districts which gave the Democrats more votes in the legislature than the Republicans. Lincoln intimated to his friends during the contest that he was gunning for bigger game than the senatorship, alluring as that was. Whether or not he had the presidency in mind, he won it very largely because of these debates and their aftermath of discussion, which took him to Ohio, New York, and New England. During these debates, Lincoln's personal political philosophy was presented with commanding force, and in attractive form. In addition, he expounded the creed of the new Republican Party with a vigor and logic which was not equaled by any of the advocates of the new cause. There were those who willingly admitted Lincoln's ability to convince the rough-and-ready Western mind who doubted that he could score a like success when dealing with a supposedly keener Eastern intellect. But the doubters and the critics were silenced when in the Cooper Union speech in New York City, and the later one at New Haven, under the droppings of Yale University, captains of industry and finance in Gotham, and the cultured college men in New England alike surrendered to the genius of the uncouth rail-splitter from the West. Mr. Lincoln was unanimously chosen the Republican candidate for Senator from Illinois, at a convention which met in Springfield June 26, 1857. He addressed this convention in the most carefully prepared speech he had ever delivered, in which he dealt with the dominant and collateral issues of the campaign. The following extract is probably the best known of any utterance by Lincoln, only excepting the Gettysburg speech. Quote, if we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, we could better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it, and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. End quote. Lincoln believed every word he uttered. Every point in this extract is as clear as language can make it. The country must become either all slave or all free. 
he was willing to stake his all on such practical conduct as would ultimately make it all free. That remained his position to the end, even though he made saving the Union more important than securing freedom. He believed that with the Union saved, ultimate freedom for a united country was possible. On the other hand, with a Confederacy triumphant and a severed Union as a result, slavery would sit enthroned in the South, backed by an oligarchy more potent to preserve the institution than the Southern leaders had been in the old Union. In 1858, William H. Seward made his famous speech in Rochester, New York, in which he referred to slavery as the irrepressible conflict. He also made a statement very much like Lincoln's quoted above. Under pressure he sought to qualify and tone down his utterance, a thing which Lincoln refused to do. When he took a stand or made a statement, it was after careful deliberation, in which he went over all of the ground. Having thus taken a position, he maintained it with consistency and constancy. In one of the debates with Douglas, Mr. Lincoln criticized his antagonist because of an implied, if not confessed, indifference regarding slavery itself, in which he said, quote, He may say he doesn't care whether an indifferent thing is voted up or down, but he must logically have a choice between a right thing and a wrong thing. He contends that whatever community wants slaves has a right to have them, so they have if it is not a wrong. But if it is a wrong, he cannot say people have a right to do wrong. He says that, upon the score of equality, slaves should be allowed to go into a new territory like other property. This is strictly logical, if there is no difference between it and other property. If it and other property are equal, his argument is entirely logical. But if you insist that one is wrong and the other right, there is no use to institute a comparison between right and wrong. You may turn over everything in the democratic policy, from beginning to end, whether in the shape it takes on the statute book, in the shape it takes in the Dred Scott decision, in the shape it takes in conversation, or in the shape it takes in short maxim-like arguments. It everywhere carefully excludes the idea that there is anything wrong in it. That is the real issue. That is the issue that will continue in this country when these poor tongues of Judge Douglas and myself shall be silent. It is the eternal struggle between these two principles, right and wrong, throughout the world. They are the two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time and will ever continue to struggle. The one is the common right of humanity, and the other the divine right of kings. It is the same principle in whatever shape it develops itself. It is the same spirit that says, You work and toil, and earn bread, and I'll eat. No matter in what shape it comes, whether from the mouth of a king, who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation, and live by the fruit of their labor, or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another race. It is the same tyrannical principle. End quote. It was common before the war for pro-slavery sympathizers and agitators to talk about the opponents of slavery marrying Negroes, and they considered that personal insult a knock-down argument against emancipation. Mr. Lincoln thus paid his respects 
to an assault of this kind. Quote, now I protest against the counterfeit logic which concludes that because I do not want a black woman for a slave, I must necessarily want her for a wife. I need not have her for either. I can just leave her alone. In some respects, she certainly is not my equal, but in her natural right to eat the bread she earns with her own hands, without asking leave of any one else, she is my equal, and the equal of all others. End quote. In these statements, Mr. Lincoln reiterates his constant position about natural rights. A good many men and women today have not reached his position, whenever the rights of a so-called inferior race are involved. And yet, there can be no progress towards a reasonable economic and political freedom unless the Lincoln standard is maintained. In the debate at Freeport, Illinois, August 2, 1858, Mr. Lincoln answered certain questions that had been asked him by Douglas, one related to his position regarding the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia, and the other as to the right and power of Congress to pass and enforce a fugitive slave law. Touching the first question, he said, quote, I believe that Congress possesses the constitutional power to abolish it. Yet as a member of Congress, I should not, with my present views, be in favor of endeavoring to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, unless it would be upon these conditions. First, that the abolition should be gradual. Second, that it should be on a vote of a majority of the qualified voters of the district. And third, that compensation should be made to unwilling owners. With these three conditions, I confess that I would be exceedingly glad to see Congress abolish slavery in the District of Columbia and, in the language of Henry Clay, sweep from our capital that foul blot upon our nation. End quote. Referring to the right of Congress to assist the slaveholder in catching his runaway human property, Mr. Lincoln thus expressed himself, quote, Under the Constitution of the United States, the people of the South are entitled to a Congressional Fugitive Slave Law, it should have been framed so as to be free from some of the objections that pertain to it, without lessening its efficiency. End quote. It would seem that we have quoted enough of the words of Lincoln to definitely show his position on the slavery question. He believed in and desired freedom for all men. But he was equally certain that slavery was a constitutional institution, and while it remained so, slaveholders had rights of protection which the government was bound to accord. He was not an abolitionist, and beyond the clear conviction that the extension of slavery could be prevented and prohibited in the territories, in complete accord with the supreme law of the land, he had no plan for its abolition, other than, by and with the consent of the slaveholders, when he assumed the office of President of the United States. That his mind progressed surely, if slowly, in the direction of freedom, as the events of the war period helped to rapidly make history, will be amply shown by the evidence. His moral and mental attitude regarding the great iniquity reached its climax in the Emancipation Proclamation and its spiritual interpretation in the last inaugural. Anti-slavery sentiment before the war. In an attempt to make plain the task confronting President Lincoln in connection with emancipation, even as a war measure, 
it is necessary to ask and answer the following question. What was the real anti-slavery strength of the country in 1860? In the main, the present generation is inclined to fancy that the free states were rather solidly anti-slavery before the Civil War, but such was not the case. Measuring public sentiment numerically is always a difficult task. It can never be done accurately. When great questions, ethical or otherwise, become political issues upon which the electorate can pass judgment at the ballot box, there is a reasonably satisfactory chance to measure sentiment, if not conviction, on that particular subject. Surely slavery was such an issue in 1860. But even so, the immediate abolition of slavery was not an issue, represented by any political party, or advocated by any presidential candidate. Four candidates for president appealed to the electorate in 1860. All of them but Lincoln held an attitude of approval of the peculiar institution, or were indifferent either as to its existence or its extension. As the candidate of the Republican Party, Mr. Lincoln was unconditionally opposed to the extension of slavery into any new territory. The platform repudiated the Southern dogma that, quote, the Constitution of its own force carries slavery into any or all of the territories of the United States, end quote. This document also affirmed, quote, that the normal condition of all the territory of the United States is that of freedom, end quote. The platform contained no hint or desire, however, to interfere with slavery in the states where it was already an established institution. Mr. Lincoln's three opponents for the office of president were Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois, John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky, and John Bell of Tennessee. The platform on which Mr. Douglas stood, as the regular Democratic candidate, was entirely pro-slavery sustaining the fugitive slave law and the right of slaveholders to settle with their property in any territory when organized into a state the question of slavery or freedom was to be determined by the people of the new state mr breckinridge was nominated by a convention which bolted from the regular democratic gathering he represented the ultra southern view regarding slavery and the constitution Mr. Bell was nominated by the Constitutional Union Party, which was supposed to be the residuary legatee of the American or Know-Nothing Party. This party declared, quote, that it is both the part of patriotism and of duty to recognize no political principle other than the constitution of the country, the union of the states, and the enforcement of the laws, end quote. This brief review will show that slavery was an issue in the election only as to its extension and increase and not as its immediate or even remote abolition when the ballots were counted in november they showed a much divided electorate the candidates having received the following vote lincoln one million eight hundred fifty seven thousand six hundred ten douglas one million two hundred ninety one thousand five hundred seventy four Breckinridge, 850,082. Bell, 646,124. While Mr. Lincoln, representing the non-extension of slavery, had a majority of the electors, he polled 930,170 fewer votes than his opponents combined. 
the successful candidate received but twenty six thousand four hundred thirty votes in the slave states and these were cast in the five states of delaware maryland virginia kentucky and missouri breckinridge the southern and slavery candidate received two hundred seventy nine thousand two hundred eleven votes in the free states one hundred thousand of which were cast in pennsylvania where breckinridge led douglas by more than twenty thousand the combined vote of douglas breckinridge and bell in the free states was one million five hundred fifty seven thousand four hundred eleven it will thus be seen that in the free states there was a majority of only two hundred seventy three thousand six hundred sixty nine in favor of the non-extension of slave territory to the extent of the electors being willing to vote their convictions in the ballot-box of those who voted for lincoln a certain number were undoubtedly in favor of abolishing slavery throughout the national domain the remnant of the old liberty and free soil parties were undoubtedly in favor of such abolition as were considerable numbers of anti-slavery men who professed no partisan attachment among the bell supporters in new england of whom there were about ten thousand there may have been some real anti-slavery men and this may be true of the bell men in new york new jersey and pennsylvania but the number was unknown and negligible there may have been some opponents of slavery in the douglas contingency but not enough to make a very substantial showing assuming that an emancipation proclamation could have been issued in eighteen sixty one as a war measure or on any other ground with a sustaining public opinion in the loyal states behind it has little if any warrant in the facts of history End of section three.